somehow be in trouble for stealing a lot of money in order to sabotage a rival business because that's not cool call me a communist And welcome to episode of Cinenation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cinenation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And for this month, for December, we are returning to a topic we discussed two years ago. I think it was, I guess it was two years ago. When we, or maybe, no, three years ago when we first came back to the show, uh, mm-hmm. this revamped show, is that we're covering Christmas movies, guys. It's that time of year. Holidays are coming around. You're seeing family. You're seeing friends. You're eating good food. And we wanted to dive back in to the Christmas genre. Last year we did the Christmas adjacent genre, and now we're sticking with the more traditional form of the Christmas movie. And I know come this season, Thomas, you watch a lot during uh, October for Halloween and horror stuff, but you also watch a lot for Christmas, don't you? I do, I do. And I should probably, I should probably try and di- make myself diversify like I, I do every October now, but yeah. um, most mostly the same old, same old. I, I I branch out. Last Christmas, last Christmas, I I really dove deep into the um the Hallmark and Netflix of it all. Got <laughs> got real into the weeds on those movies, but um, but yeah, we I definitely have the standards yeah. for Christmas. Yeah, and it's and and the thing is, is that these first few episodes this month are going to be the standards. They're going to be covering for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we talked about this genre, so, so we talked about this genre a few years ago. And so what do you think of when you think of the Christmas genre? I mean, I think of I think of the first two movies we're going to be talking about this <laughs> month. They're, they're definitely, you know, they're the classics. Yeah. There's the top tier. Yeah. And then there's kind of like the middle tier. And then there's the lower tier, which are the Hallmark and, and Netflix movies. Um but mostly this idea, I think the overwhelming idea is that Christmas is a time of introspection. Christmas is a time. And I, I think we talked about this last year, even talking about Christmas adjacent movies, but like so much of like what we know about a Christmas narrative and a Christmas character arc and all of that just goes back to Dickens and, yeah. and, and um, <laughs> Christmas Carol. Yeah. And this idea that like Christmas is this time to take stock of yourself to take stock of your entire life, to take stock of your future and 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 just kind of figure out if you're happy with where you are in your life and your relationships with others mm-hmm. and the way that you think about the world and yeah. reevaluate yeah, all yeah. of those things. Yeah, it's weirdly I mean here's the thing it's like we talked about last month with 25 memories but it, there is like a ticking clock aspect to it. Is it the mm-hmm. the year is ending and you're like, "Oh, what did I do this year?" What did I do mm-hmm. with my life? Did I progress in some way? We all go through that kind of mentality, and Christmas movies can sometimes like do that. For what I, they have characters that are going through that same kind of struggle uh, or obstacle in their lives, and yeah, I, I, you brought up kind of like with these kind of different kind of the the, the classics and then the the kind of middling ones. There's a good article we we looked at about like how Christmas movies kind of go with the history of film is that is that at the beginning with these movies we're gonna be talking about today it's like it was the it was the theater you saw movies in the theater so a lot of the films you saw i think i don't know they might not say skewed towards adult now but at the time i think more more adult 
and themed. I think mm-hmm. this being a prime example, I think those rom like again, this early kind of romantic comedies of shop around the corner or remember the night, like they're playing towards an older crowd. Yeah. Um, and then television comes in and that's when you get the more kind of Rankin and Bass animated kind of Christmas cartoons. Um, and so we change with the times of when there's a new kind of medium or median medium, it's the, with VHS, you get more kind of, uh, films of that nature. And then with DVD, same thing. And then with streaming, I think now we're in that streaming age where it's like everything like streaming and, and, and kind of cable or whatever. It's like Christmas, Christmas are constantly playing come December when I'd say 20, 20 years or like when we were talking about just friends when we did like a few years back it's like that was a time when like it could easily go undiscovered and now like mm-hmm. christmas movies are on a loop all the time now yeah um and so yeah when you say christmas carol i think that's the big part to kind of break down the genre is that a lot of it spurs from dickens the, the traditional christmas film like i think we think of like you said the introspective nature and i think too and we'll talk about this today is like i think the Christmas film in America really hit its stride or really kind of gained steam in a kind of World War II atmosphere is mm. that with war going on in Europe and overseas, um, we needed something to feel like at home, like at home with like the, with your, with your, with your husbands and brothers and sons and away and even the daughters and people who are fighting at home in some way, it's like you wanted some sense of place and some sense of family and love and Christmas movies were a way to do that. So you see kind of the, again, like the remember the night you see shop around the corner, you see um, I'll be seeing, you'll see me, it happened on fifth Avenue. You see all these movies that are dealing with connection in some way and kind of family and love. And it's all about kind of goodwill towards men basically. And that's, and Christmas is kind of the time for that. Mm-hmm. So are there any like kind of tropes you think of within this genre to start off with? I mean, definitely the kind of Scrooge-esque. Yeah. Like look back at your life or revisiting of a certain point in your life. And there, there's so many Christmas Carol adaptations out there. But that trope is goes beyond those. I mean, that happens. It's going to happen today. Yeah. The film that we're talking about, this kind of retrospection, some like flashbacks, just, you know. That is a, a, a staple of the of the Christmas film. I think to to separate from Christmas adjacent because last year we talked about that and some people were kind of like, well, this is like it sets it it set at Christmas, so like that's a Christmas movie. But I think Christmas adjacent and Christmas films are different, and I think it's that key point of there is this kind of like Christmas has to play a major factor in the climax usually of the film, mm-hmm. like it needs to be set there. Well, and I think I, I was just talking about kind of our, our picks for this month and whether or not specifically, I think this this helps to lend, you know, a, an idea to where we're going with this month, but whether or not specifically uh, Christmas Vacation would be a film we would talk about this month. And I mm-hmm. think I think what we're really going for this month are, are like movies that have that approach the idea of christmas the idea of being about christmas with like no sense of irony which i do think yeah. there's this like kind of tongue-in-cheekness to christmas vacation that is like oh we're gonna show you like kind of the dark side of what it's like to be yeah, around your quir- family for yeah, the, christmas. Quir- the quirkiness of it all and yeah it's the, yeah, it's yeah the comedy of it yeah and, and and kind of the films we're going to be talking about 
this this time around we we did a lot of the christmas adjacent films last year and and with like shane black is this idea of like i'm gonna show you the dark side of christmas but what we're talking about specifically this month is like the movies that really buy into the spirit of christmas that's that's the key that's the key phrase right there thomas the spirit Mm -hmm. of christmas the spirit of christmas has to be kind of the through line of it all and 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 then you add in the, the the kind of setting where it's always kind of there and i think that comes into play tremendously with today's movie and that is it's a wonderful life and it's more of a life we're we're starting with kind of the granddaddy of them all is what kind the of feels. christmas movie the christmas movie love it or hate it because there's some people that do hate it um i've met them <laughs> i want to i don't want to reveal my hand too early on in this episode but oh wow <laughs> Um, so it's a wonderful life released in 1946, directed by Frank Capra, starring Jim, James, Jimmy Stewart, Donna Reed, Lyle Barrymore, Thomas Mitchell, just a great cast of supporting players. And for those that don't know, it is about George Bailey, a man who has kind of reached the it's kind of the his low point in his life. He has found himself stuck in Bedford Falls, some northeastern town, probably New Jersey. Um, and he, he finds himself stuck and kind of contemplating his life and he's contemplating suicide. And the night he's contemplating suicide on Christmas Eve, um, we're kind of the first half is we're seeing the flashbacks of his life that has led him to this point. And we're being told this story through, uh, Joseph and these angels and this guardian angel, Clarence, it's going to go down and help George and show George that he has a wonderful life and it's kind of, it's going to, I think cover everything we've just discussed briefly in this beginning. Um, but it's currently streaming on Amazon prime. If you haven't seen it and if you have, if you haven't go, go watch it. It's great. Um, but if you have seen it, you want to rewatch it. This year's the perfect year. I got it. I watched it earlier this year. Usually I always watch it on Christmas Eve. Uh, and I watched it, end of november is so (laughs) so i'll probably watch it again like a month come christmas eve um so thomas what is your history with this movie (laughs) (laughs) watched it every year since i can remember yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, i think you you brought up a good point when like we were talking about kind of the certain podcasts that ask what's your most watched film what's the film you watched the most in your life and they're like oh like 2001 a space size you're like no yeah. it's a christmas oh, movie. eight and a half no you're lying <laughs> if you if you celebrate christmas even i know plenty of pe- i know people who don't celebrate christmas who and watch, still christmas watch christmas movies, movies. <laughs> um, but if you are a watcher of christmas movies you're watching the same dozen christmas movies once a year yeah. and so unless you make an appointment once a year to watch eight and a half <laughs> i guarantee you you've watched it's a wonderful life more than you've seen eight and a half like that's just that's just how it works you probably seen a christmas story more than you've seen yeah you uh, probably watch that multiple times at, yeah, every december every december at least half of it like 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 I, I, christmas story is the one like you, you watch in bits it feels like because mm-hmm. it's always on it's like ooh, i'm catching the part when he's dressed up as a as a bunny or it's the santa part anyway um, but yeah, there's a there's a lot of movies that I remember the first time I saw them, and I I can't remember the first time I saw Wonderful Life. I yeah, it has been a, a staple. We've got three three Christmas movies that are like staples in our household when it comes mm-hmm. to like 
Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and it's yeah. Wonderful Life, White Christmas, and Miracle on 34th Street. So yeah, this this movie has always been a part of my life, but we'll talk about it more as we get into it. It is an yeah. incredible movie to grow yeah. with. I think it really, it's, it really is. It's one of those movies that, as opposed to some of the Christmas movies I revisit every year, that I can think of one that you and I both revisit every year. That every time <laughs> I come back to it, I'm like, ooh, this ooh. movie is not aging that well. Um, <laughs> But every time I come back to this movie, it's like a richer text. It really, <laughs> it, it, is, no, it really it is. It is a movie about growing up. It really is, and and it's like you're you're seeing the kind of like underlying themes and issues, and at the at the core of it all, it's about humanity, and and keeping one's humanity and showing showing humanity to people. Mm-hmm. And and again, even this time, I've seen it. I've seen, like I said, I've seen this movie countless times. I probably watched the first time maybe in high school, kind of late, maybe middle school and like, and probably watched it almost on average, probably every other year, at least I think the past, like as I've gotten older, I think I watch it more than I used to. If that makes sense. Like I watch it like now it's like kind of a, a set thing. I have to watch it every Christmas mm-hmm. and it could be Christmas Eve, it could be Christmas day. It could be even the, the day after Christmas. Um, I have to kind of watch it every December. And I think like you said, I think it's because of how like well it's made and the the issues it's kind of discussing. Like I've had friends that have watched it very late in life for the first time because I always thought it was like a very it's they see the kind of clips on other movies of like every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wing. It's like the sentimentality of it, and they don't realize kind of the real core of the film. And so when I have a buddy that watched it and he was just like, I'm here bawling my eyes out right now because I didn't know this movie was going to be about this. Um, <laughs> and that and that happens. Um, so with rewatching it, uh, what were, I mean, again, this one we've seen so many times. Were there any new things that came out, came at you like right out of the gate when you're watching it? Or is it kind of the same? I mean, I just think I, I think that. The older you get, the more you can relate to George. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Honestly, it's it's something I found, and this is something I do like talking to all my friends with, kind of post college, post grad school. Is this just like how do you relate to the people around you? How do you measure yourself against the people around yeah. you? And so much of this movie is kind of about that: measuring yourself against yeah. your peers, measuring yourself against your own expectations. And I think specifically the last couple of years, I've revisited it. The scene that sticks out to me is when um, George's friend and mary's kind of ex-boyfriend comes yeah. through town and is like very successful and it's like oh my fiance and i are on our way down to florida you guys should take the week off and drive down to florida with us <laughs> and george and mary are both like we can't do that we have kids and <laughs> we have jobs. kids and jobs and a life and they handle it like very casually and then after he drives away george has that moment where he just like walks up to his you know crappy car and like kicks the door on it and i'm like oh man i feel that i feel that <laughs> that is real and what's great too about it is that it's not like it's not explained mm-hmm. you know what i mean like it's not like we don't we don't have him vent about sam wainwright like being successful you get just in that clear moment this frustration that's in george he doesn't have to discuss it and i don't think he's the type he would discuss it mm-hmm and so, yeah, I think it's those little moments that you just see over. I, I catch over and over again. I think probably two years ago, it's like I catch like just the I think one thing I think of and we'll talk about more. I don't want to jump too far. Our favorite scenes. Um, 
but like it's it's the run on the bank like the stuff with that and and this kind of like again the helping helping your neighbor out in some way and how george even in his darkest moments is still kind of naturally good he still thinks about clarence in that moment it's like the whole the whole kind of the uh like con i guess for clarence is that he sacrificed himself knowing george is so good hard he would save him that's mm-hmm. kind of the thing but yeah there's a lot of stuff we'll discuss i think i think this time more i noticed the visual style and what capra and crew are doing like visually in this movie i actually think tip my hand a little bit i think it's the most visually interesting film i i think capra has done that i've seen Mm. i think some stuff is just i think still kind of like striking and just incredible um but we'll dive into that more so let's get into the history of how this movie got into productions because there's a lot of stuff around this movie and i don't know how much you know about it thomas like there is even a there's a story that came out like yesterday in Entertainment Weekly. As I was writing this, I was like, "Really?" Because <laughs> um, because it, it's the 75th anniversary right now is what it is. Wow. Um, it's yeah, crazy. So the story of It's a Wonderful Life begins in November 1939 when author Philip Van Doren Stern, what a name, began working on a short story that became known as The Greatest Gift. Van Doren Stern was an author that worked mostly as a Civil War historian, but when World War II began, he worked in the Office of War Information. In 1943, four years later, Van Doren Stern finished writing his short story about George Pratt, a man who was on the verge of suicide when he's shown what life would be like without him. Um, it's interesting because I've read this short story, and it's actually kind of a little cool, like, contained story. The kind of It's kind of the whole, like, last half, last hour of the movie, basically, is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, where he meets Clarence and he's there's no Mr. Potter or anything, but he's going around and seeing what his life would have been like. And it's like his father's still alive, Mary's married someone else. And what Clarence gives him, which is it's a good kind of planning and pay, paying off in, in the story, he gives him like um chimney sweep like brushes. And he's basically says, You're gonna be a door to door salesman. That's gonna give you like the way to kind of get into their houses and kind of see what their life is like now that you're hmm. not there. And the kind of little man, it's a little spoiler for people that want to read it, but it kind of ends with like, he's giving out the brushes. And then when he like begs Clarence to bring him back, he goes back home. His wife's all there. He sees his family. He hugs his wife. He walks back and his hand hits one of the brushes that was there. So it's kind of this thing of like, it's it like left. Uh, they all happened. It wasn't a dream. So anyway, but Van Dorn Stern was inspired by Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol <laughs> after, he had a, after he had a dream of something that kind of was very similar. Uh, and he would spend several years writing um, the story, working on this 4,000-word story. But he was not able to obtain a publisher of any kind. So around Christmas in 1943, Van Dorn Stern created around 200 Christmas cards slash pamphlets with the story inside and he went around giving them to friends and family. Um, somehow, one of these cards ended up in the hands of David Hempstead, a producer at RKO Pictures. And he felt the short story would be a great starring vehicle for Cary Grant. Um, mm. So RKR, RKO bought the film rights to the story for $10,000, which is about $157,000 today. 
During this time at RKO, several writers came on board to adapt The Greatest Gift. Two of the biggest writers that were hired were Dalton Trumbo and famed playwright Clifford Odette, who we talked about in the Sweet Smell of Success episode uh, a few months back. Trumbo's version was not about a building and loan business guy. It was about a politician who was on the verge of losing his office on election night and was contemplating suicide. And he showed what would have happened if he didn't get office, basically. Uh, and went, in biz- went into business instead is what it was, I think. Um, then another version of the script was uh, there were two Georges, one bad one and one good one. And like they end up like fighting on the bridge at the end of the movie. It was very, apparently very, very different. Um, and in all these versions, there were no, there was no Mr. Potter. And so none of the scripts were up to the studio's liking. So the project mostly stalled. And around this time, uh, famed director Frank Capra was looking for his first directing project after finishing up his service for the U.S. Army during World War II. And he was very adamant he did not want to direct a movie about war. Um, after he returned to the States, Capra partnered with two other American directors and, ser- and former servicemen, William Wyler and George Stevens, to create their own production company called Liberty Films. The idea was it would be a place where directors could have control over the products they made. Um, once the company was formed, RKO snapped up distribution rights to their first nine films uh, they are going to release. Uh, because of the deal uh, with RKO, Capra somehow became aware of The Greatest Gift, he felt the story was he felt the story captured the things he was looking for, the values and ideas he was willing to tackle in his first film back um, from World War II because he said he was very kind of disheartened uh, with humanity at the time. And he didn't really want to do comedies, which is what he was kind of known for at this point with things like it happened one night and uh, you can't take it with you. Mm-hmm. Um, RKO was just like, you know what? Have it. We don't want this buy it from us for the same price we paid to get it. So Capra pays, uh, uh, Liberty pays RKO $10,000 to land the rights to the greatest gift. And on top of that, they get all the early drafts that were made at RKO. So Capra goes to the script and tries to find the best parts of these earlier versions. Um, other writers come on board to the project to help develop, develop the, the, the script Capra brought on the wife and husband screenwriting duo of Francis Goodridge and Albert Hackett. And the duo, this duo's most famous credit before this film was The Thin Man, starring William Powell and Myrna Loy. Oh, nice. Um, and they did a few of the sequels as well. Um, when looking back on the writing process of the film, Goodridge said that Capra was a horrid man. Um, <laughs> according to Hackett, as they were writing their version of the script, they found out that Capra and another screenwriter, one of their friends, Joe Swirling was was also writing their own draft together as a team. Uh, they said finding out this news really took out the passion to write the script. And when Capra called them to ask women to be finished, they said, we're done, wrote the last scene, turned it in and never saw him again. Um, they also brought on at this point too Liberty contract writer Michael Wilson to do a pass. And Wilson would later co-write A Place in the Sun uh, a few years later. They'd also bring on famed writer Dorothy Parker to polish the script off as well before going into production. So a lot of, a lot of talented screenwriters mm-hmm. touch this. But that's that's the system we're in at this point. It, it, it shows it. Yeah, very much. It's like I think like Ga- the Gower stuff is like Clifford Odets. I think, um, I think there's like there's like kind of just like strands of every kind of writer is in there in some way, and it's kind of an amalgam of all their ideas. So as the script 
uh, is developed, Capra begins looking for his cast. Uh, and when it came to George Bailey, there was pretty much only one person in mind, and that was Jimmy Stewart. Uh, Stewart and Capra had worked previously together on You Can't Take It With You and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And Stewart had also just recently gotten back from fighting overseas in World War II, where he had served uh, he'd served in the military even before America's involvement in the, in the uh, World War II, enlisting in February 1941. Uh, he would serve in the Air Corps, British, British uh, Royal Air Force, and finally the Army Air Force during World War II. He's apparently one of the few people who rose from private to colonel in only just four years. So he was there the whole time uh, mm-hmm. and was even like, he was actually like a proceeding officer, like a marshal or uh, um, kind of like a, a court case of like a bombing that happened in like Zurich. And he was like the overseer of the case. It's a really kind of interesting story. Um, so needless to say, Stewart was not making movies during World War II. He, he made actually a few appearances in like some like, like the like propaganda like films early on he was like hey i don't just want to be the guy like in front of the camera i want to be out like fighting and so he was a a, a pilot um very much like uh harry bailey in a way um because of his military involvement stewart did not make a movie for five years and when he returned to the states he was pretty close to quitting acting entirely he was contemplating moving back to his hometown in pennsylvania to run his family store Um, But with a new contract that allowed him to not be tied to a specific studio, that felt very new to him, and he decided to star in It's a Wonderful Life. Um, Capra initially wanted to reunite a Stewart uh, and Capra kind of uh, collaborator from You Can't Take It With You and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington to play the role of Mary, and that was Gene Arthur. But Arthur declined the role because she had just dropped out of the Broadway play Born Yesterday due to exhaustion. That's when they went through several names before finally barring the contract player, Donna Reed, who was at MGM, who had really only had maybe one starring role in like a, like a small romance romance film like a few months prior to this movie. Um, and then according to Capra, he considered over 170 established character actors for the 17 supporting roles in the film. Wow. So he looked at everyone. Um, and so with the cast set, script in order, production for It's Wonderful Life, is going to begin and it's the first ever film by Liberty films. So Thomas, what are some of your favorite scenes in this movie? Wow. Okay. Um, (laughs) This honestly, this is my longest list I've had of scenes. Well, I think this is, this is one of those rare movies where the scene that hits me the hardest emotionally, I think Mm -hmm. is right up there at the front because the Mr. Gower sequence gets me every single time real okay it is i think it is so well done i think the guy playing mr gower is fantastic i think the kid playing young george is fantastic Mm -hmm. and i think it's just i think that is such a perfect little sequence to like introduce you to him and you get you know you get all the stuff you get uh mary having a crush on him you get kind of the love triangle aspect of 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 it but um just the way it teases it out you know george comes into work he works at the soda shop at the pharmacy mr gower seems off and i i don't know i like i like that they introduce us to gower that way so then when we see him like very warm and friendly later yeah we're like, the, oh that's what he's that's, meant to be yeah. like and that's what hits the hardest later when it comes back and it's like 
oh, here's what would have happened to oh, him. Oh, when he shows up at the end? Oh, yeah, man. when he shows up at the end. Yeah. But yeah, so then, you know, George finds this letter that's kind of left sitting behind the soda bar that his son's died. Mm-hmm. He goes back and Gower's obviously drunk and sad and tells him to go deliver these pills. George, being a very resilient and resourceful young man, recognizes that Gower has mixed the drugs wrong and that these are deadly and like goes to his dad for help. His dad's busy. He comes back and Gower literally starts beating him because he hasn't delivered these pills. And he has that great. He's like, don't please don't hit my sorry anymore. I know yeah. you didn't mean it. I know you're sad, but these this is poison. It's poison. And yeah, and, and Gower realized he, he does like taste it. Yeah. And like realizes it and like, hey, that's that great moment where he goes to like hug him. And George is like, please don't hit me in my sore ear again. And he's like, no, no, no. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. The, the, uh, Bobby Anderson's the kid who plays who plays young George. And he's really good. He he, I saw him pop up in a few movies like in that time. But this is kind of the big one um, that he's in. And I think he's great. I think he's. I, I agree with you. It's a very good kind of introduction. H.B. Warner, who plays Mr. Gower, was like a, I, I found it was like a, a character actor that no one was like really using anymore. He had been mm. type. He had played Jesus and Cecil B. Mills like, uh, like one of his biblical movies in the 1920s, and apparently like everyone just cast him like roles like that, like just we like just like kind of Jesus like stoic figures, and Capra like tapped him to do this, and he was so excited because it was so different than anything he'd played. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it is, it is, it's like one that like it does and, and it shows again, like with, with kind of George, it's like all those elements that what he becomes is there as a child. They're all mm-hmm. still there. And it, it just, be, it becomes more refined as he grows older and, yeah. and it's tested with more things. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. He's, he's smart. He's observant. He's mm-hmm. responsible, but he's also empathetic. Like the way that he's, he doesn't really want to tell anyone what's going on because he mm-hmm. knows that this would get Gower fired. Yeah. Run out of town. Yeah. And he recognizes that this is a extreme circumstance. You know, it's, it's, it's this is probably isn't going to happen again. It's just his re- reaction to what's happening to him mm-hmm. that day. And, and he's, he's willing to like, you know, he's willing to take it to to protect him mm-hmm. and i i also like what you said too about kind of like how it introduces the other characters it's, it's a good intro scene to like most of the characters we're going to meet in the movie we see in this kind of opening as they're like younger so you're yeah. seeing you're seeing uh mary you're seeing um violet you're seeing uncle billy you're seeing uh ma ma or a uh, pa pa- bailey you're seeing like people at the bank you're seeing mr you potter, potter. Yeah. Like you're seeing, you're seeing kind of everyone. You've seen uh, um, uh, Harry right beforehand, so you're kind of you're getting, you're seeing the cast of characters pretty early on, and all of their traits that you're gonna see as they get older, I guess, are still all there as they're like younger and are kids, based or if they're kids or if they're young adults, younger adults. Um, no, it's a, it's a great scene, and the way the way Capra stages it. I think it's the way he like this, the shot of like through the shelves mm-hmm. uh, with all the kind of uh, like every, there's a lot of depth to the shot, basically. And they're kind of going inside in and out of the aisles when he's doing that. So no, it's a great scene. I, I here's the, what's, what's so weird is that I think this movie is pretty much perfection or pretty close to it. But I do find that I like the first half scenes more than the second half scenes mm. for me. Because I think the second half is almost like one big continuous thing. 
Mm-hmm. And I think the first half is all those individual moments leading up to that. Yeah, I can that see I that. think set it up so perfectly because like because all my stuff is like on my list of it's like it's this scene, it's this scene, it's this scene, and then like the last hour is just like one big thing. And there's still great moments in it, but yeah. I mean, I I don't get choked up a lot of movies, but I get choked up multiple times in this movie. But the fact that it can already get me choked up within the first ten minutes <laughs> is kind of insane. It's saying something, yeah. So that's your saying. I um a lot of the big ones are with Mary and George. I mm-hmm. think Mary and I think Donna Reed and Stuart I think are great together in this movie, and to think she's like hasn't been in like a starring role before is kind of amazing to me because the the shot of her when they when Capper introduced her at the dance I think is just mm-hmm. like jaw dropping to me of just like how it's just a perfect introduction to her as this older this woman who she's grown up to be a woman now. And what's so interesting to with that, with that romance and relationship, it almost feels like they get one by the censors a lot of the time. And in, mm-hmm. in the, in the, in the, that, that whole scene with her in the, um, in the bushes, you oh, know, yeah. that, that, that makes sense now that you say that the, the, the thin man team was on this. Cause mm-hmm. they're, they're You're like right. back and forth, especially yeah. in that scene is hilarious. Yeah. And like, it's great. You know, for this, like kind of, and that, that's, Every time I come back to this movie, and you and I have talked about this before, but like I think because of Capper's reputation, mm-hmm. because of Stewart's reputation, because like you said, this kind of runs every year, and a lot of people think of it as just this like tearjerker, sentimental, candy sweet, yeah, Christmas movie. You forget, you forget one how dark it is, and two how funny it is, yeah. And that that scene with her in the bushes is hilarious, <laughs> and and I mean, anyone listening is well aware that I'm a huge fan of Jimmy Stewart's comic timing yeah. philadelphia story is one of my favorite movies of all time but yeah i sorry i'm stepping on your i'm stepping no, no, on your favorite totally scenes right now but like when she's in the bushes and she's like i'll tell your mother and he's Where? like i don't know she's a couple she, blocks she, that she's way she's down the street she's like, i'll call the police and he's like ah oh, they're even farther <laughs> and they're and they'd be on my they'd be on my side too uh <laughs> i got i'll sell tickets i got okay no i love i also love i always think about too it's like it's the it's when, like when they she throws the rock and it's like, what'd you wish for? And she starts singing. And then he's like, goes to the end of the chorus. Uh, uh, Dance by the light of the witch which wishing to the rock. Like the way he just like goes with it. <laughs> but yeah. I, yeah. The, the, that scene kind of ends with the guy being like, youth is wasted on the wrong people. Yeah. And again, there's this great like sexual tension between them in this moment for this type of movie. Again, like I said, because the Thin Man writers, it, it does all kind of make sense now. It's the like him kind of stepping on her dress. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. Um, but then you have this very sweet moments when they throw the rock at the, at the old house, basically. Um, and yeah, I think I think all their stuff in the stroll, I think, is just fantastic. Um, and I think, too, that's the one that those two scenes, that and the dance stuff, like the way they shoot them, I think, is fantastic because it feels like at one point um, so they put like a filter or some kind on both of them. Where like their close-ups are almost like everything is out of focus except them in certain moments, and then you go to the mm-hmm. wide, and it's like completely in focus, and you start seeing almost like stars and stuff. It reminds me a little bit. We talked about this to Kill a Mockingbird with how they put like a like the trees over one of the shots, and this kind of magical feeling, and it almost feels like they do something very similar in this movie, where it's like stars or lights or something there that kind of like is over at least them in the background when they had their like close-ups in their first meeting uh when they're now like adults basically mm-hmm. um 
And I think it's beautiful. Dance by the light of the moon. What'd you wish when you threw that rock? Oh, no. Come on, no. tell me. If I told you, it might not come true. What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Hey, that's a pretty good idea. I'll give you the moon, Mary. I'll take it. Then what? Well, then you could swallow it. And it'd all dissolve, see? And the moonbeams would shoot out of your fingers and your toes and the ends of your hair. Am I talking too much? Yes! Why don't you kiss her instead of talking at her death? How's that? Why don't you kiss her instead of talking at her death? You want me to kiss her, huh? Oh, youth is wasted on the wrong people. I feel like I'm gonna feel like I'm gonna step on some of yours here. <laughs> oh, it's fine. That's fine. I, well, I'll but, hop in when we do it. Um, kind of when you're talking about slipping one past the censors, the the scene to me, even when I was a kid, that I recognized was like, this is like, this is. He's making violent love to me, mother. Yes. <laughs> yes. The scene of them like finally getting together that oh they are tapping god. into something like visceral in that oh scene. Oh god! And I mean, you know, they've got that one shot of the mom like running back upstairs, like <laughs> oh, horrified yeah, by what horrified. is going on. Like it, it's, yeah, uh, that that one's wild. I can't. Yeah, I can't imagine the kind of conversations that went on with the censors with that one when he's like. They did cut. They did. They did cut some of it. By the way, they did cut some. No, of it. Okay. It was, yeah, it was, it was too. It was, but it. I mean, it is a. It is a very. I, like I don't even know how you would direct that scene. It is such an emotionally complex scene. Like what? What are the beats in the scene when you're breaking it down? He, you know, his mom sends him by. He comes by to see Mary. She's dating somebody else, but she's obviously in love with him. The her boyfriend calls. He's a friend of George's. They're both on the phone with each other. They're both like falling in love with each other <laughs> while they're on the phone with him. Yeah. And then he just has this moment of recognizing. I mean, I think the beat here, at least what Jimmy Stewart is playing, is that he is recognizing that if he falls in love with Mary, he has to stay here. He is giving up on everything. Yeah. Yeah. And he just has this like cathartic moment of like, I have to get this out that if I, I am in love with you and if I am in love with you, all of my plans are kaput. Yeah. And he does. And she she knows that that's what he's saying, too. Yeah. Yeah. And then they're like, all right, we're in it. That was my question this time that I didn't think about until this viewing. I said, when George is going in there, is he actually self-sabotaging himself as he's going in there? Is that why he's such a jerk to her when he walks into her house? Yeah, I, I think he absolutely knows he's going to that house to test out. He's got a theory. Yeah. He's going to that house to test out the theory and he almost doesn't want to be proven right yeah and as soon as she's like fawning over him he's like oh shit this is <laughs> this is happening let me be more of a jerk is the thing uh yeah no no yeah the scene and there's actually more to that i'll tell you that on onset live because there is some good stuff with that scene i tell people i was like if you want to see probably one of the most sexiest or the, like one of the sexiest scenes of like hollywood cinema in the 1940s or just not even sexy passionate that's mm -hmm. the better word. It's just like, and it's it's shot in that one close up of them two together, and just like them being so close. It's just like it's so intimate, and you're just like you feel like you feel just this electricity between both of them, 
and then it just like lets loose mm-hmm. like it's just it's just i think it's i think literally it's it's what's it's like one of those things that's that's like the one of those things where it's i'm just like this scene is so damn good like yep. everything about it is just like it's perfect yeah it's perfect it's, it's one of those things yeah like like i was saying with beats like you know a lot of like acting classes have you break down like beat sheets like what what is he playing on this beat what is he playing yeah. on this beat this is one of those scenes where there there is so much that is happening during the scene and if you're you know if you're underestimating this movie <laughs> <laughs> as this like oh the power of christmas movie you're completely missing out on yeah. like the journey of these two characters in this scene Money, yeah. Well, a little. Well, now listen. I want you to put every cent you've got into our stock, do you hear? And George, I may have a job for you. That is, unless you're still married to that broken-down building and loan. <laughs> well, this is the biggest thing since radio, and I'm letting you in on the ground floor. Oh, Mary. Mary. Well, I, I'm here. Uh, will you tell that guy I'm giving him the chance of a lifetime, do you hear? The chance of a lifetime. He says it's the chance of a lifetime. Now, you listen to me. I don't want any plastics, and I don't want any ground floors, and I don't want to get married ever to anyone. You understand that? I want to do what I want to do. And you're... And you're... George, George, George. So, I like the scene with him and his dad at the kitchen table. Because it feels like they're like two characters. Like, like the thing is, George's father is always going to be hanging over him in this movie, mm-hmm. unspoken or spoken. Pa Bailey is always there to a point where it's the photo. Fo- it's the it's the photos of him in George's office. It's the photos of him in George's house. It's the thing that hangs over his mantle in his living room of all of his family. It's a picture of his father. And so his father, he always kind of saw at not a, like he he kind of catch him. So he's like he got he sees like staying in town as a failure, and in a way, that means his father is somewhat of a failure. And his father, I think, just like all the decisions are based around like what his father might do. Um, and it, it's that that kind of I guess um, parenting of both him and his mom, like it's it's ingrained in George. Um, for the entire film where I think everything go everything goes back to how he acts with Gower at the end of the day, like what he learns from his father. Do you have one more? One more. I have a, I have a few. More. <laughs> I mean, I, the thing is I could go even more minutes on the ki- the phone call kiss. Honest to God. Like that. I think that's <laughs> that scene. Cause I, I was thinking like, what's Sam thinking on the other end of that phone call? Like, you know, he's hearing what is happening that entire time. <laughs> Yeah, I know that that scene that is one that when I was a kid, yeah, I was like, I want to get through this scene. I'm uncomfortable. Like, <laughs> let's let's get through this scene. And I think that goes to show you something something, yeah. you know, yeah. something is going on in that scene. But yeah, at some point that at some point in the yearly rewatch, that one clicked for me and I was like, Oh my god, this scene is this scene is wild. Okay. If I've got to, if I've got to narrow it down to one. Um, I mean I think one that <laughs> the end. Okay, <laughs> throw I mean, that yeah. out there. Yes, sure. The that end. I agree. Me. Yeah. Be, all right, but be, but before we get to that, um, I I think just kind of the the whole scene of him 
coming home after Billy's lost the money is yeah amazing. Everyone yeah. is killing the kids are killing it, Stuart's killing it, Donna Reed's killing it. it. It's just like yeah, it's any other day. In fact, it should be better than any other day. We're coming up on Christmas, yeah, and like something is up with Dad, and he's trying he's trying to hide it but he's also not trying to hide it yeah yeah, yeah. and then he it's you know it's yelling at his daughter to stop playing scales it's going up and and getting on the phone and yelling at his uh, 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 zuzu's teacher it, yeah no one gets enough credit for this movie which is which is weird to we, say yeah just <laughs> weird to say because this yeah. movie shows every year everyone sits down and watches it every single year everyone knows it but like this is just a masterfully acted made yeah. movie, and yeah, Stewart's on it. Stu- in that yeah, scene. I think to go with your 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 talk about beats, it's like that's a, that's a hard thing to do too because it goes from like being upset, being being the like the worst case worst version of George in mm-hmm. this moment in time, and it's in front of his family, and that's that turn when he realizes. Oh my god, I'm a terrible person right now. Yeah, and it's and he see again. It's, it's this beautiful look that him and him and Donna Reed give uh, uh, that him and Mary have of where it's like it's almost like you're transported back to when they like were younger. Does that make mm. sense? Like they, like this. There's this like youthful love still within them that is in these older scenes. And there's just there's so many good little beats. I mean, like that that the the staircase, the banister, whatever yeah, the banister you call keeps, it. Yeah. What is the little knob on the top of a banister? I don't watch enough HGTV. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when they're younger and they move into this this crappy house, they've always, you know, admired. It's fun. You know, this little thing. And then you just hit some point in your life and you just hit one day. And that thing, all of a sudden you realize that thing has bothered you for years. <laughs> and that is such a that is such a great note. This drafty you know? old house. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, every everything now that was like charming and theirs is like now anno- annoyances basically mm-hmm. uh and she's been working so hard to like do like to basically build make this into a home and all of a sudden it's it's yeah he, it's just yeah it's such a but I, I love the detail too of like of his like workstation in the house in that moment when he like when he breaks everything apart basically and i, I think too again d- the design of this film seeing what is in people's like homes and offices in this movie really deter or showcases the character. So with like with George, it's the, it's the picture of his father. It's also pictures of his family kind of everywhere. If you go and look around the, the, like if you go and look at like the, the Bailey house, Ma Bailey's house, you see pictures of uncle Billy just like on shelves. Like it's very much this family thing. And then when it comes to like heroes, it's like George's father has a picture of George Washington. And then uh, George has a picture of Lincoln. And Potter has statues of Napoleon. Mm. And just that design of it showcases who these characters are, kind of, or what they aspire to be, is maybe the better way to put it. Yeah. It's what they aspire to be. And that scene, too, it's like he tears up, like, you're, you're literally seeing him in that scene with his arc, like his kind of building space, tearing up his dreams for the, Finally. I think it's like yeah. he's finally given up fully in this moment in time. Zuzu, well, what's the matter with Zuzu? 
Oh, she's got a cold. She's in bed. Caught it coming home from school. They gave her a flower for a prize, and she didn't want to crush it, so she didn't button up her coat. What is it, sore throat or what? Just the cold. The doctor says it's not The doctor? Serious. Was the doctor here? Yes, I called him right away. He says nothing to worry about. Is she about. running at temperature? What is that? Just a teensy one. 99.6. She'll be all right. Of course, it's this old house. I, I don't know why we don't all have pneumonia. The drafty old barn of a place. Might well be living in a refrigerator. Why do we have to live here in the first place and stay around this measly, crummy old town? George, what's wrong? Wrong everything, George. You call this a happy family. Why do we have to have all these kids? Dad, how do you spell Frankenstein? I don't know. I asked your mother. So, The Round the Bank, I think, is a, is a masterpiece. I think, I think, again, visually, I think sound design, I think acting, I think everything about this that, that sequence from when they're in the car... To when it's he goes back home to like see uh, no uh, not ma- Mrs Bailey my wife my wife yeah, yeah. So, to that like so but the the again yeah I think at this point in time come coming out in 1946 you're seeing the this run on the bank that by the way it's not it's not like it's not Great Depression began the Great Depression began the Great Depression and the same people kind of always think that for some reason it felt like but like it's years later. But like it's definitely bringing back memories of probably people in this time period of what it was mm. like when the Great Depression started, and what I find to show to summarize kind of George's struggle throughout the movie, it's when he's there's beautiful shots of him Mary in the car with the rain pouring down on the back of the car. I think it's just stunning, and you have him running running down the street Main Street in Bedford Falls, and you're hearing like sirens and people and and like all this noise happening and it comes to the building alone and he's standing in front of this just like crowd of people and no one is speaking and capra takes all the sound out and you just hear rain Mm -hmm. and it's such a impactful moment of like what george is literally walking into it's like he is walking into the storm basically and not much is spoke like no one's no one's telling him what's going on. He's literally just walking through everyone trying to be his normal. So, oh, the door is locked. Let me get you in. And then it's like no one's fully telling him. And then it gets in the moment in the bank when at this moment in time, Potter gives him an out and he refuses to take it because he's he, he knows what will happen to these people that are waiting to get money from him in the, in the bank. If he if he bows down to Potter, that's yep. the whole thing. And he has the great speech of like trying to explain, try to actually like get to everyone's kind of tug on their heartstrings a little bit of like why they're doing what they're doing and who they are as people. It's the humanity aspect, and Potter doesn't give a damn. Your money's in in his house. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's like you, you help him, he pays you back. That's what we work on. And I still always hate the dude who takes out all guy. of his money. He's terrible. Joke? Yeah, no, it's I, Tom. It's, it's Tom, Tom isn't it? I have 217 whatever he says and he's, he's like, like please Tommy signed an agreement yeah and it's like and he's just like no I want all of it and everyone else is like I'll just take 20 and it's like 17 what 1750 17, I'll tell you that one now so that was not planned that moment apparently so so Stu so the, they rehearsed it over and over again she's supposed to say 17 dollars what's you're supposed to say and Capra goes to her beforehand, hey, say 1750 just to see what, what Stuart does. <laughs> and she says 1750, and that's Stuart's actual reaction, where he just goes <laughs> 17 and then kisses her. 
And he's mm. like, okay, give me some quarters. And like, you, you see like a little bit of a smile that she gives when she does it. Cause that was completely unplanned. <laughs> wow. And, and that's what I think, what I think Stuart is amazing at in this movie is how people kind of, people talk about later on a decade later, Brando and the rise of method acting and, and the kind of the realistic moments they're able to capture in their performances. And it's fantastic but Stewart is like the next level beneath that. And it's pretty mm-hmm. damn close to it because he just has beautiful moments of like connection with people where he's listening. And I think to kind of transition into the ending or part of the ending sequence is like the part that got me kind of in tears when I watched it uh, uh, yesterday. It's the moment when when he's about to um, hit Bert, um, the cop, uh, Bert's and the Bert's the cat. Get out of here, Bert, or I'll hit you again. Yeah, Bert, yeah, Bert. Um, So Bert, so he's about to hit the cop. And when when he, when he realizes he's back in his like world and Stewart's, do you know me? Yeah. It, it looks Stewart's face in that scene. is wild. It's, it's, it goes from like crazy to pure joy and astonishment that oh my god yeah it's 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 literally just like and then you're just like it that's when you get like you're in for the crying fest the rest the rest the ending of the movie Mm -hmm. (laughs) and yeah it 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 gets it gets me kind of every time in some way of of just like what it builds to that kind of the kind of climactic moment of uh no man is poor if he has friends basically yeah you you pay off absolutely everything yeah gower gower comes back everyone shows back up and Stuart's got those great reactions. There's a couple of shots where he's just like, you don't even hear it, but he's just like mouthing yeah. the people who have just like, just come in the door. It's, uh, it's so well done. And it, it is earned like 100%. I, I, once again, I keep saying like a lot of people think of this as this kind of like treacly film. And I, I don't know. I don't think you're, I think you've just got it on in the background at Christmas. I don't, I don't know if that's the way that you feel about it. I don't know if you're watching it fully, but, um, yeah, every every moment is earned in this movie. I agree. So, what was your last? Oh, I was just gonna say absolutely. One thing about the run on the bank that is when when I talk about growing with this movie. When I was a kid, I didn't know I didn't know what a run on the bank was. I didn't know how to building and loan functioned. So that is when <laughs> I like some, one year I watched this movie and I was like, oh, I get what's going on here. Yeah, yeah. and it makes George's sacrifice like so much stronger. Now listen to me. I, I beg of you not to do this thing. If Potter gets a hold of this building and alone, there'll never be another decent house built in this town. He's already got charge of the bank, he's got the bus line, he got the department stores, and now he's after us. Why? Well, it's very simple, because we're cutting in on his business, that's why. And because he wants to keep you living in his slums and paying the kind of rent he decides. Joe, you had one of those Potter houses, didn't you? Well, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten what he charged you for that broken down shack? Here, Ed, you know, you remember last year when things weren't going so well and you couldn't make your payments? Well, you didn't lose your house, did you? You think Potter would have let you keep it? Can't you understand what's happening here? Don't you see what's happening? Potter isn't selling, Potter's buying. And why? Because we're panicky and he's not, that's why. He's picking up some bargain. Now, we, we can get through this thing, all right. We, we've got to stick together, though. We've got to have faith in each other. But my husband hasn't worked in over a year, and I need money. How am I going to live until the bank opens? I got Dr. Bills to pay. I need cash. I can't keep my kids on faith. I've got to have... How much do you need? Hey! I got $2,000. So on set life, because this is where it gets kind of fun. 
to me. Uh, Onset Life. So production for It's Wonderful Life began on April 15th, 1946, with a planned filming schedule of 90 days. The film called for a picturesque northeastern town, so that's what production team built. The movie was shot primarily on RKO Studios in Culver City and the 89-acre RKO Movie Ranch out in Encino, California, which is still in Los Angeles County. Um, They actually used Oscar-winning sets from the 1931 film Cimarron as the basis for the sets in the movie. The set for this film was huge, spanning four acres of space on the ranch and taking two months to fully build. The Main Street set was 300 yards or three blocks long, becoming the longest set ever built up to that point. They built a working bank on set, and there were 75 buildings created for the set of Bedford Falls. Wow. Um, They also planted 20 oak trees that lined the center of Main Street as well. They apparently also allowed cats, dogs, and pigeons to roam the set to give a lived-in feel to the city, is what it was. (laughs) Um, they also built sets that they would be able to extremely that are they also built sets that would be extremely adaptable for the changing seasons. And speaking of changing seasons, it's time to talk about probably the most important achievement of this film's production, and that was the snow. So before It's a Wonderful Life, there were several substitutes for snow in film. The most common common being bleached cornflakes, uh, while others were cotton and asbestos asbestos oh great that you yeah yeah the issue with cornflakes however is they create such a loud crunch when walking on it it completely ruined the dialogue which recorded then the re-record it in post-production and since almost half of this film takes place during christmas capper realized that would be an issue because he wanted to shoot close-up dialogue scenes while the snow's actually falling and shown in a realistic way so capra then brought on rko's special effects department head Russell Shearman to develop a new special effects kind of snow for the filming. Shearman ended up using a combination of water, sugar, soap, and fomite, a substance that's found in fire extinguishers. With this mixture, they were able to shoot out the snow with high pressured canisters covering the large set that had been built in Encino. The mixture would become the common technique for creating snow in film for decades to come. But one of the biggest tests for the snow was the California heat. Because as I said, production started in mid-April, and it would go into the summer, and apparently L.A. was experiencing a very massive heat wave at the time. So the inside of the sets would reach up to 90 to 100 degrees when shooting. Uh, The heat had gotten so bad at one point that Capra had to call an unscheduled day off in the middle of shooting because the amount of people that were suffering from heat exhaustion. It also did not help that they were wearing winter clothes for most of the film. Yeah, uh, that's why in the final sequence when Stewart is like sweating all the time, it wasn't because he was out of desperation and at his lowest moment. It was because it was hot. It was incredibly hot. But it also works story wise. It works perfectly. It's the shot of him when he runs up that close up of the turn is his eyes. And speaking of kind of the visuals, uh, the film also had three cinematographers on the project. Two of them received credit for the film. Uh, the film's initial DP was 10-time Oscar-nominated DP Victor Milner, who was fired by Capra because he felt he was slow and pretentious. Capra's DP that had worked on several of his films before, like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, uh, Joseph Walker came on board to shoot the film, but midway through shooting, he was forced to leave the film to shoot a film over at Columbia. Walker then brought in and trained Joseph uh, Byrock, to replace him, and Byrock uh, only had shot two movies up to that point. 
Capper uh, would say like, oh, like it kind of works because all the sequences are kind of different visually. So that's why I wonder if that's why the movie is so visually compelling to me is it because it's so many different things happening mm-hmm. from different people. In terms of several filming or in terms of filming of several scenes, there were several unplanned moments in this movie. A few of the famous ones being uh, Billy, uh, Uncle Billy's drunken walk home when there's a loud crash off camera. Apparently, that was not planned. Uh, that was a technician that knocked over some equipment, causing the crash, and Thomas Mitchell ad-libbed the line, I'm all right, I'm all right. <laughs> Capra then gave the crew member a $10 bonus for improving the scene, which is about $130 today. Um, another scene, here's a callback, uh, was when Mr. Gower slaps George Bailey in the ear for not taking the drugs to sick kid. Apparently, H.B. Warner actually smacked the kid over and over again, Bobby Anderson, when they were doing it, uh, which has resulted in him crying like he does in the movie. Oh. So, kind of wow. real. Yeah. Uh, and Warner apparently would like after it was over like hug him and like apologize for doing it so there's that uh and the final thing to speak on is jimmy stewart so even while filming the movie stewart was still having doubts about being an actor and was still heavily considering retiring completely once this film was over because he felt he had gotten worse as an actor since he had not been acting in five years the scene he most he most feared while filming the movie was can you guess uh the scene with with donna reed on the phone on the phone call he was terrified of the kissing scene because he had been out of the game for too long <laughs> in terms of kissing on camera and so also he, as we discussed it is a incredibly complex scene yeah. as far as beats go so he kept pushing it off as long as possible uh, so when they did the scene, Capra blocked it to where they were going to be in the same shot together and they shot it in one unrehearsed take. What? And that's what you see in the movie. What? <laughs> they apparently had to cut some of the kissing from the censors because, or the sen- because the censor deemed it too passionate. Also, Stuart and went Reed on t- went on too long. Yeah. That also speaking of that also Stuart and Reed apparently skipped the entire page of dialogue in the scene that's not in there wow they're they just feeling it they're they just, just feeling it. it this is uh this is what year is this this is 40, 40 46 so this is the same year as notorious this this have been let's see it's notorious 45 or 46 notorious is 46 but i'm not sure what went in 46 because that was like the longest probably before screen kiss or something at that that, that two, two, mu- scene. Two, mu- two, two months before two months before also, wow. R- also RKO. Great year, nineteen forty-six. Great year for phone kissing scenes. <laughs> phone kissing scenes. <laughs> yeah, apparently after they got done, uh, Capra, the script, he's like, "Hey," but they missed a page of dialogue. He's like, <laughs> "He's like, when it's good, it's good." Did you see that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, and so after all of that, the film wrapped on July twenty-seventh, nineteen forty-six, actually making their ninety-day deadline exactly. So into the aftermath of this movie. Now, a lot was riding on this film for Frank Capra because it was the first film that he had produced, directed, co-written, and financed himself um, through Liberty Films. The entirety of this new company rested on the success of It's a Wonderful Life. And when this film was released, 
it was not successful. The film was supposed to open in January 1947, but was moved up to December 20th, 1946 to qualify for award season. See, they even did it back then too. The film was met with middling reviews, with some people calling it too sentimental. While some enjoyed the glimpse into small town America and how it captured humanity. The film, however, would not fare well at the box office, uh, recording a reported $525,000 loss for RKO, which is about $15 million nowadays. I've also Mm. read that they needed to make $6 million to break even, and it only made like $3.3 million. So it was a big loss for them. Um, Apparently, audiences thought it was too depressing for the holiday season. <laughs> uh, and there, apparently, I, I just found out right before this episode, there was a bad winter on the East Coast. So people stayed in because it was snowing so much. That did, that caused them not to go out to go to the movie theaters. Um, however, It's a Wonderful Life would receive five Oscar nominations that year, including one for Stewart. But the film was swept in every category. Some said that the, mo- the move to actually move it to December actually hurt the film because 1946 was a tougher year with the best years of our lives, which was directed by another Liberty founder, William Wyler. And it racked up at the Oscars that year. And it was about world war two and coming home. Mm-hmm. Um, the next year, it's big competition would have been the gentleman's agreement. And the other two nominated films that year were the Bishop's wife and miracle on 34th street. So when that snow got invented, people went crazy and started making Christmas movies. <laughs> Since the film would be a financial failure for both Liberty and RKO, the writing was on the wall and Capra had lost his power in Hollywood. Liberty would only release one more Capra film in 1948 called State of the Union, but they would soon sell the company to Paramount Pictures in 1951, and It's a Wonderful Life was destined to slip into obscurity due to its failure with audiences and critics. That was until 1974, when someone messed up somewhere. (laughs) So... The rights to It's a Wonderful Life changed hands a few times in the 1950s, finally landing at National Telefilm Associates, a former uh, audiovisual marketing company. Don't know how they got the rights to this. In 1974, they made a clerical error, and the copyright for the film lapsed, and the images soon fell into public domain. This allowed for cable stations across the country to program the film at a very low rate. The only thing they had to pay for, actually, was Philip Van Storen, uh, Philip Van Doren Stern's story because he still had the copyright to the original short story of the greatest <laughs> gift. So he made money off of it, but because it was such a short, it was a short story. It was so minuscule compared to actually paying a studio. So for almost 20 years, it's a wonderful life ran on countless cable stations across the country and in time soon found the audience and entered into the Christmas film canon. It wasn't until 1994 when NBC was able to gain control of the television rights to the film, making it an event film every Christmas for close to 30 years now. And in that time, the film rights would be brought back to Paramount Pictures, finally taking it out of public domain. So yeah, a lot of stuff with the aftermath of that movie. Mm-hmm. So Thomas, what worked about this film? Wow. Um, cast, script, you know... A lot of times when you hear kind of like script by committee in Hollywood, it, it's it's a negative thing um, because it, it doesn't lead to kind of like one one voice coming out. But mm-hmm. I think in this particular instance, specifically in this era of Hollywood, you know, a lot of scripts were being very heavily influenced by the studio system and by getting a lot of strong voices 
but ha- having them split the script up, I feel like maybe yeah. it slipped past yeah. the studio. You know, the, if it had been like one strong voice, maybe it would have been a little mm-hmm. bit more heavily censored or toned down. But like we were saying, it 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 all gets pat the the raunchy humor comes through, the like passionate drama comes through, mm-hmm. the really dark stuff comes through, and and the ultimate you know the 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 kind of lesson comes through. Yeah, and and it all works. I it it like I, I keep saying this is a movie that every time I revisit it, it is it is richer and richer. Yeah, and that's that's kind of insane for this movie 75 year old movie yeah 75, 75 year, old. year old movie that everyone has watched on television at some point in their lives yeah and um yeah i think it's 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 weird to be here like championing this this movie that <laughs> everyone has seen but like just sit and watch it like you would watch any other movie i think we yeah. we kind of treat these christmas movies in a different way but but really really give it that shot and i think it'll really change the way that you that you see it yeah cuz i i think when looking at now like the history of it too of just like how influential it is in a particular period in Hollywood. Cause like this was technically an indie film. That's the crazy part. This was an indie film that was being made in the Hollywood studio system. And because of it not being supported, it failed. Um, it reminds Capra in this sense, sense reminds me a little bit of Coppola. Of like betting it on the house and losing, mm. and I feel like and that's you've got, it's yeah it's such a well because you've got like this Hollywood golden boy just won an Oscar yeah and then went off to war yeah and has come back from war and like doesn't even know if he wants to keep acting like maybe I'm gonna do this one Stu- more yeah. movie and then it's, I'm out it's like, insane and go work the at a cards were family- stacked against this movie yeah go work at a family store in Pennsylvania Donna Reed is no one at this point in time to America. And the rest are just like, I mean, Lionel Barrymore is, we haven't talked about Lionel Barrymore and this, <laughs> and, and, and like, he's an older, he's an older, he's, he's a man up in his old age right now. And I don't know, I don't know if this is his last, it was his last movie, I don't think, but it's towards the, I don't know, he's, he lived for eight more years. Never mind. Go on, you Lionel Barrymore. He was 68 in this movie. Um, <laughs> People age differently. I know. But also, there's, there, maybe some makeup, maybe some makeup. Um, but no, yeah, I think it's a very important film to look at as a film and not just a holiday classic. I think there's so much going on in terms of of people as as the characters. I think in terms of the structure of the film, I think in terms of the visual style of the film. Um, I think in terms of even just the sound design. I think I think everything's kind of firing on all cylinders here. Um, to like the production design when you like when you look at the production design like really break it down of what they do in this movie it's astonishing mm-hmm. it's astonishing because that would just be I mean yeah it was like built on a back lot but it's very different it's almost like is is the production design of it's a wonderful life underrated it's like the question because i feel like it kind of is it's like people talk about the big huge epics that are built in like the westerns and the towns but like this feels like a street you could go down mm-hmm. and you can watch these old Hollywood films and it doesn't feel that way. It yeah. doesn't feel that way. And this, and also it's, it's the kind of the back to the future thing. It has the switch with the, with the, like being the bars and the neon fuel feel filled a uh, kind of city. It's an interesting switch of how you're able to do that. That's a hard thing to do mm-hmm. to go from like picturesque, like 
nice Norman Rockwell town to its party central. So what did anything not work about this movie, Thomas? Hmm. I have two things. All right, let's hear two things. Maybe I'll come up with something. They're two very nitpick things. One's a really big nitpick. There's some editing choices Yes. That are so odd. Yeah. And they yeah, have yeah. like these they, free they, freeze they frames. Cut to some shots. Yeah. I noticed a couple of times they cut to some shots that what what's the what's the rule? Is it thirty degrees? There's the one eighty degree there's, rule? There's some rule that like when you cut from one shot to another, oh, it yeah, has yeah, to be yeah. like a certain amount yeah, yeah. Of, of change. Yes, to where it's not just like a jump cut like you go closer in. Yeah. And there's a couple like a four, of times like they, like cut to, they cut degrees. to a shot yeah. that it like has not the camera has not moved enough to justify yeah. a cut. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also parts of like very like old school Hollywood where it's like, okay, you see him walking down the streets. They walk in the billion loan, pan up to the billion loan title, freeze frame on that, dissolve, and then walking into the billion. It was like it's 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 the shoe leather of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like you can tell like they didn't get they didn't hold the shot long enough, so they just like freeze framed the image of the of the of the uh, the title of the uh, the building. So that was it. And then my other thing that I'm not sure about. I love the scenes, but do you buy Jimmy Stewart as 21 years old? No, no, okay, absolutely okay. not. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Yeah. Or his brother, when his brother comes running downstairs and it's like, they're like, Harry, get dressed for your high school graduation. You're like, that is a grown ass man. <laughs> that man is not graduating from high school. Uh, yeah, because because when you get to like him, Harry, when he shows up at the end, I'm like, that dude's like, why that guy? Why uh, what's his that? What's the actor's name? Um, why uh, yeah, Todd Carnes wasn't bigger, because he he has like a very like that period look mm. for like leading even like B movies or something like he could be in like a noir around that time, but like he yeah. doesn't do a lot of stuff after this film he's like everything i look at it's like all like lieutenant co-pilot lieutenant lieutenant first mechanic soldier soldier <laughs> he's just soldiers in all the rest of his movies yeah that's a bummer he, yeah he's great in this i mean everybody's great in this yeah so all right alternate universe cast uncle billy we had wc fields was rumored for it at one point was considered yeah that's i uh, Billy's pretty broad comedy already, but that yeah. feels very broad. Very broad. Uh, Walter Brennan. That's also very broad. <laughs> <laughs> Love Walter Brennan, but I don't yeah. know if he fits in this movie. Uh, Henry Travers, who plays Clarence, was considered for Billy. Okay. Uncle Billy. He was also considered for Pa and Mr. Gower. Capper, wow, they just Capper, really wanted him Capper in this movie. Capper really wanted him in this movie. Mr. Potter. Speaking of people who were in the movie, but not in the part, they not people who were in the movie, but were up for their parts. Thomas Mitchell from Mr. Potter, hmm. who plays Uncle Billy. I don't know if I see that, but, you know, I also maybe wouldn't have seen Lionel Barrymore before he played this part. So that's true. Well, see, Lionel Barrymore kind of got it because he had done Scrooge on the radio at the time. Uh, and that's why they kind of cast him. My my like real experience with Capra and Lionel Barrymore is outside of it. this is yeah. you can't take it with you where he plays yeah. just like literally the nicest guy in that entire movie <laughs> yeah he's great he's uh, barrymore i mean i love that we're like lionel barrymore guys underrated yeah you guys should really <laughs> check out this actor named lionel barrymore have you ever heard of him 
Yeah. From 75, 80, 90 years ago. Go check him out. Um, Claude Rains was up for Mr. Potter. Interesting. Yeah. They they would have aged from these two pe- these two people up. Claude Rains and Vincent Price was the other one. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't see. I can't. I can't see Vince's price not hamming it up entirely yeah. too much in that role. Not that Lionel Barrymore is not hamming it up. <laughs> Ronnie! <laughs> when he's doing, I love it. One bar I just love, it's him, it's the draft board when he's just like, ah, I mean, just like, like whatever noise he's making when he's mm-hmm. like rejecting or accepting them. I think it's, it's fantastic. Um, okay. Bert, the cab driver. There was someone big apparently thought about for this role. And his name is Robert Mitchum. Makes okay. no sense that he would be in as Bert. That's what I love about the Hollywood studio system. You got those Who, yeah, future contracts. leading men in these little yeah. supporting parts when their contracts are coming up. And I think, I think he was already a leading guy. That's what doesn't make sense to me that he was like up. like Because I multiple sources said he was up for it. And he had just gotten an Oscar nomination a year before. So it's just it's odd to me. But I don't know if like when the drug bust was, if that was why. Hmm. I'm not sure. Um, okay, uh, Mary Bailey, mm-hmm. Olivia De Havilland, okay, was considered after Gene Arthur turned it down. Ginger Rogers apparently was offered it. I'm sorry, no. But turned it down, saying it was too bland. <laughs> and then she later realized that she kind of messed up on that one. I think she said in her her memoir, uh, her her autobiography, it was like, uh, "Who saw that?" It's kind of like what she says. Yeah, I don't. I'm sorry, I don't know that Ginger Rogers would have handled yeah. that phone scene. No, Donna as Reed. Well, Donna, Reed's, Donna yeah, Reed. Did. Donna Reed's amazing. Uh, and then George Bailey. Uh, one name was tossed around. I think it was always Jimmy Stewart, but they you gotta have one backup because I mean Jimmy Stewart might go off and work at a, at a store in Pennsylvania. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, who would you who would you say would be a backup for Jimmy Stewart? Henry Fonda. Henry Fonda. Exactly. Jimmy Stewart backup. Yeah. Yeah. Fonda was coming back from the war as well after he had fought in the Navy. I'm sorry. I don't want to call. I feel weird calling Henry Fonda discount Jimmy Stewart. But those are <laughs> those are your two like wide eyed small town boys with yeah. hearts of gold. Like hearts that's of gold. just yeah. Who who ended up playing uh, Western villains? Yeah. I think he ended up doing like Abe Lincoln, I think. Or he did a no, no, my darling Clementine. That's what he did instead mm. of, of of this movie. So I think it worked out fine. All right, film facts. We got a few. So while the film did not win any competitive Oscars, Russell Shearman did win a technical achievement award for his invention of the fake snow. I just want to bring this in here because the side thing. Uh Shearman would tragically die of a shark attack what? while filming underwater scenes of a movie in the 50s. Yeah. Oh my God. So there's that. I just, I just, I, one of those things I, I saw, I was like, I have to bring this up, but don't know where to put it. It's just such a weird, like, it's such a, like, crazy thing. Um, this happened. Um, so, uh, the, this was the first film to be released on CD ROM in 1993. That was the thing. Predating the DVD. Yeah. So before this, Windows computers could only play 35 minutes worth of video. And this is the first one that played more than that on a computer side thing did you see what mr gower's son died of uh influenza spanish flu is what he died of the spanish flu uh. it's, it's 1919 and that was running rampant and with soldiers and stuff overseas and in america mm. uh it was a pandemic guys i don't know if you knew that um 
Only two locations from the film survive because they raised, they, they got rid of the RKO studios, both studios and the ranch. The first is the swimming pool that was unveiled during the high school dance sequence, which is located underneath the gymnasium at Beverly Hills High School mm. and was still in use as of 2013. Wow. Uh, the, the other one is the martini home where he kicks the door in. It is in like near Pasadena. Still there. I've looked it up. You can look it on YouTube. People tour, really? like, go go and look at it. And it's like, the, it's so weird. Like, you're really like, oh yeah. Cause it's such a, it's just a regular neighborhood trees everywhere. But then you start to realize, oh, that's the, that's the mountains in the background from the movie. And like the pathway is kind of very similar and the house still looks kind of the same. So yeah. Donna Reed, they had a person to come in to throw the, uh, the rock at the house, uh, was the plan. And they didn't realize that Donna Reed was a former softball player and or baseball player and could throw the rock. And she apparently threw it farther and harder than anyone there. And so that's actually her throwing the rock in the wide shot and hitting the exact spot they wanted her to hit. <laughs> so they were just kind of all shocked by it. Um, there were cut scenes and alternate scenes, apparently. One was of George the end kneeling and saying the Lord's Prayer. But Capra cut it because he didn't want to be too religious. Mm. Um Let's see. So there were some issues with writing credits in this, by the way, because uh, if you notice, Joe Swirling gets additional scenes by credit, even though he co-wrote it with uh, Capra as one of the drafts. So there apparently was a kind of hard fought battle on who would get credit. And I think Capra, I don't know if Capra didn't want Goodrich and Hackett to get it, but it was very much like they wanted everyone to get credit and Swirling got the least of it. And apparently did not speak to the 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 married couple Hackett and Goodrich after that. There's one star I haven't mentioned yet, and that is Jimmy the Raven. Ah, yes, of course. Jimmy is Uncle Billy's pet raven that appears in the film and had first appeared in Frank Capra's You Can't Take It With You in 1938. Mm-hmm. He would appear in over a thousand feature films. Oh my God. And the rest of Capra's films... Uh, he also appeared famously in the Wizard of Oz as the as the crow as the raven that takes uh, um, uh, hay out of um, our straw out of the scarecrow. So yeah, um, Capra would also would say that there is one moment in the film that people complained to him the most about, and that was that Mister Potter did not get his comeuppance in the end of the movie. You know, I I, I think the same thing like. Normally, I'm not like, oh, the bad guy needs to pay for being a yeah. bad guy, but he stole money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And nothing happens. Nothing happens. That, no, he's just like, all right. Now, uh, there, one of the scenes apparently I did find, or it was in the original script, I don't think they shot it, but apparently after when George goes like, Happy New Year, uh, or, or, or Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter, and Potter's like, Happy New Year to you in jail, uh, apparently there was a scene where Clarence comes and confronts Mr. Potter in the room or in, in his office at the bank, but they didn't shoot that. Okay. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't really need that. Yeah. So Capra sidestepped the censors. Cause that usually it's like, you're supposed to have the villain get the comeuppance. They steal money. And that doesn't happen in this movie. Uh, they did, however, tighten down certain language in the film. Uh, they couldn't have words like jerk in the movie. Um, and there was some stuff regarding, violets the dialogue around violet that was kind of cut and trimmed they didn't want in there also they didn't want stewart drinking a lot at the bar they didn't want him to be like kind of i think it's either censors or the R- or rko was this way 
They didn't want a lot of drinking at the bar. They actually didn't want any drinking at the bar. But they're like, we have to do some of it. Um, and the makeout scene between Stuart and Reed. Last thing on film facts. So, on May 26, 1947, the FBI issued a memo stating, with regard to the picture, It's a Wonderful Life stated in a substance that the film represented rather obvious attempts to discredit bankers by casting Lyle Barrymore as a Scrooge type so he'd be the most hated man in the picture. This, according to these sources, is a common trick to use by communists. In addition, this person said in his opinion, this picture deliberately maligned the upper class, attempting to show people who had money were mean and despicable characters. So this movie was considered communist, is what they were saying. Uh. And social and socialist. Take what you will with that, guys. Um, story questions. I mean, one of mine I had down was what happens to Potter after this, so... Yeah, I don't thought really, too. Sorry, I don't really want an angel to confront him. I do want him to <laughs> die <laughs> or go to jail. Somehow be in Lose. trouble for stealing yeah. a lot of money in order to sabotage a rival business because that's yeah. not cool. Call me a communist, <laughs> but that's not very that's not very cool capitalism of you right now. Yeah, I yeah I don't know. Yeah, it's like nothing. I, I like know what happens to him. Like does does like Billy finally remember? Well, isn't you know, that's that's the SNL sketch with the uh, Dana Carvey, right? Where they realize it was Pyro that stole it, and they go and like beat him up mm-hmm. you, with Dana Carvey. Yeah, John Lovitz is playing Mr. Potter, and it's like, oh, he can actually walk is with the whole like with the whole thing. <laughs> uh, I asked my question of like, what is what is that conversation with Sam the next time they meet up after he hears his one of his good friends making out with the girl he's in love with? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously, Sam's doing fine. He's in plastics. He's in plastics. I got one word for you. Plastics. plastics. One question I had. So, it's Mary's cousin that does the whole pool like thing, right? Isn't it Mary's cousin? Yeah. What's the? I don't. What's the I deal don't with that, that guy? That was that was the only thing I had down. Like that is he just out for pure chaos? Like. Yeah. <laughs> He, we have no like prior grudge against George or anybody. He just shows up and he's like, "Hey man, you want to get back at that guy?" Yeah, Why don't, I've got the key. Why don't you open this thing up? This is just like what? The, what is it? He just wants to watch the world burn. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've always like wondered like because I didn't re- I, for a while. I was like, "Who's that guy doing that?" And I was like, "Wait, it's her cousin that like gets them to dance." And then he's like, "Hey." And I think it's just like he's pulling a practical joke on his friend and his cousin. I, that's what I can assume. But it's still just it's very it's very odd. It's very yeah. odd. I, all right. I'm fascinated. I'm absolutely fascinated by the character of Nick. <laughs> Nick seems like a great dude. Yeah. When we first introduced to him. And then like when we're introduced to him in the in the no George world. He is an asshole. Yeah does george go to that bar enough that he has that much of a profound effect on nick that him not being in the world changes his character that much apparently i mean it's like it's it's kind of like with or the is it martini it's the martini is 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 because because it's nick's place there's yeah. no martini martini without george's help doesn't rise enough to own his yeah. own bar but like yeah i'm just so curious as to what it is about a world without george that makes nick that much of an asshole <laughs> Also, I, I love his accent. I love Nick in general. Yeah. That's it. Out you go. Um, no, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, that, that's the thing with with um with with Ernie, where it's like it's like because George isn't there, like 
he gets divorced from his wife and and she leaves the kids leaves the kids <laughs> like that's a pretty big that's a pretty big jump for ernie like ernie ernie lost in that one that's a big l for ernie in that moment in time so i mean it, it's it's the it's the little things i had this conversation with people a lot of like it's those little little decisions in life that really can affect the major ones it's the like you didn't do this this day so you don't run into this person um and then this has to alter your life it's those little bitty things and so with this movie it, it has that same thing it's the little things of like george not um uh george or george not being there to help gower or george not being there to help harry as a kid like it's like every those are big moments but even just the little things of uh that george does um that affects the overall makeup of the town because he's yeah. the kind of at, at the end of the day he's the one guy who's going to stand up to potter and yeah. if there's no one to push back then everything kind of falters mm-hmm. so that's what that's what he's there for um any other questions i don't think so all right awards beatrice straight award actor actual limit scenes that kills it my nominee is gower i don't know if that's i think that's a accurate amount of time yeah i would i would for me i'd also throw in pa bailey okay he only only has two scenes yeah he sells it um and i think he's great but two kind of the father figures in his life at a young age that was the thing with gower Mm -hmm. and and pa um or father or father figures um i think both are great i think i want to throw in if she counts here i just want because we haven't discussed her gloria graham as violet is Violet. she Beatrice Strait or Annie Potts? I would put her up for for Annie Potts. But. Okay, we'll talk about her in a bit then. I I just okay. want to I want to mention her. I don't think I'll give her anything with this, but I just want to mention her. I like Pa. You like Garrett. I'm fine with the co Beatrice Strait. All right, so split I think, ballots. I think I think we're very like hard pressed and like this is my, where I'm going with this person. You know, George, I feel that in a small way we are doing something important. It's satisfying a fundamental urge. It's deep in the race for a man to want his own roof and walls and fireplace. And we're helping him get those things in our shabby little office. I know, Pop. I, I know that. I, I, I wish I felt that uh, I, I've been hoarding pennies like a miser here in order to... Most of my friends have already finished college. I, I just feel like if I didn't get away, I'd bust. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. You're right, son. You see what I mean, don't you, Pop? This town is no place for any man unless he's willing to crawl to Potter. Now, you've got talent, son. I've seen it. You get yourself an education and get out of here. Okay, Annie Potts X Factor Award, supporting actor, actress that is the most memorable in the film. I think there's a lot in here. Yeah. I think you get Thomas Mitchell, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you get Lionel Barrymore in here, for sure. Absolutely. Um, I, I think, I think borderline, as we talked about Annie Potts, Beatrice Strait, Gloria Graham's in there. Cause for a while, I think she's a phenomenal actress that, that has been rediscovered more of late because of her noir films for the longest mm-hmm. time. I just thought she was only in this movie, but she was in so many other great films, won an Oscar a few years later, uh, for the bad and the beautiful. So just a, a great actress, but so who, who, those are my kind of three people I'm thinking. Is there anyone else I didn't mention? You Would you include. count Donna Reed in this? That's, supporting? that's what I was wondering, too. That's what I was wondering, too. I'm going to say yes. All right. 
then I gotta go down and read. Then I will go down and read as well, simply because she's like not there for like the last hour of that movie. It feels like that's true. Yeah, it's like she have you have the house scene, and then you have the ending, and then the old maid. By the way, I gotta say this transformation of the old maid character. I still <laughs> don't believe. I think it's it's like that's one of those like the cliche of like take the glasses off. That's the she's all that thing. Mm-hmm. Somehow it works in that movie. I swear to you, it's the Clark Kent Superman. I don't get it. Anytime I see hair, that, they've got her hair pulled back like anytime real tight, I big anytime old glasses. I, yeah, anytime I see her, I was like, that can't be Donna Reed. <laughs> it, just, it just can't be. Um, because not saying one's less attractive or whatever. It's they both look so different. Is the thing. Mm-hmm. And like, there's not a lot of make, there's not makeup going on in that. It's the thing. So, so Donna Reed, I think she sells it. I think she's amazing. I think again, too, for someone who's like not really been in a, le- like a, a kind of a big meaty role at this point, she's 25 years old. Like it's, it's, it's kind of amazing to see her. So kind of, I guess, uh, electric in, in, in this kind of, big movie at this point in time in her career. Nice about your brother Harry and Ruth, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's all right. Don't you like her? Well, of course I like her. She's a peach. Oh, just marriage in general you're not enthusiastic about. No, no, marriage is all right for Harry and Marty and Sam and you. Mary, Mary, who's down there with you? It's George Bailey, Mother. George Bailey? What's he want? I don't know. What do you want? Me? Not a thing. I I just came in to get war. He's making violent love to me, Mother. You tell him to go right back home. And don't you leave the house either. Sam Wainwright promised to call you from New York tonight. What's your mother made? You know, I, I didn't come here to... What did you come here for, then? I don't know. You tell me. You're supposed to be the one that has all the answers. You tell me. Why don't you go home? That's where I'm going. I don't know why I came here in the first place. Good night. Good night. All right. Gene Hackman MVP award. Person who carries the movie, director, actor, etc. I would give it to Frank Capra, but I think it's Jimmy Stewart. I think it's Jimmy Stewart as well. This is a... This is an incredibly complex film Yeah. for Capra. I'm going to bring it back again. It's, this movie is underestimated by everyone who has seen it. <laughs> and I think a lot of people on in, Ca- on in Capra's defense, I think a lot of people simplify Capra to the point where they're like, oh, Capra, the whole message of this movie is like, if you just stay in your hometown, you'll be fine. No, that's not what the message of this movie is about. The movie is saying it is okay to resent it's okay to resent being stuck in your hometown. It's okay to recognize that maybe you haven't fulfilled your dreams. You just also have to recognize the value of the people around you and the the things that you have done with your life. Even if you want to still, you can still be disappointed and not achieving the things you want to set up. I don't think it's saying like, Hey, George, George's destiny was to stay in his hometown. Um, it's just also saying like by staying in his hometown, he should recognize the good that he has been able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the even tougher sell than Capra translating that to screen is for Jimmy Stewart to embody all of that in one he, person. Yeah, because he carries the whole. He, uh, he's he's the movie. Like yeah. you're rare, very rarely are you seeing a scene without him in the scene. It's uh, except the kid stuff early on. He's there yeah. 
the entire time. And he's playing so many different, and you could argue like, oh, Capra is the first one to like really see the different shades and facets of of Stuart. But like, I think of like finding out just how doubtful he was in the moment in time. I think just like showcases like how like amazing, like how like how hard he was, like how hard he was thinking about what he was doing. Like mm-hmm. he was still, like he was so obsessed with his work and focused on it that he really was thinking he was doing a bad job in this role because it was so different than him and he didn't have to take it is the thing like he 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 at that point in time his career had complete control to retire or to go do something else because he was independently working but he stepped up into this role so i think stewart is the one i'll always think of with this movie and capper i think like, I, I, what do you think of more with Capra or Stewart? This or Mr. Smith Goes to Washington? I think Mr. Smith is more of, of a Capra film. I yeah. agree. I agree. And this is more Stewart's film. I think it's more Jimmy. Because I think I think Stewart, I think to look also the trajectory is that I think this catapults Stewart's career. And I think it harms Capra's career mm-hmm. is the thing. And that's not Capra's fault. But I think Stewart... I think Stuart's performance is what really just kind of elevates it to a whole other level. Here, you're all businessmen here. Don't it make them better citizens? Doesn't it make them better customers? You you said that they, what'd you say just a minute ago? They, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait, wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them? Until they're so old and broken down that they, do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. I'm not interested in your book. I'm talking about the building and loan. I know very well what you're talking about. You're talking about something you can't get your fingers on, and it's galling you. That's what you're talking about. I know. Final questions. If this was remade today, who would you cast? (laughs) So this is something that you and I have discussed (laughs) several Decembers in a row, because every time I watch this movie, (laughs) I bring up how similar the character the actor who plays nick resembles the current actor cliff curtis <laughs> every time i watch it just like that is cliff curtis um so first off cliff curtis, cliff curtis who played nick. nick maybe yeah. i'd beef up the role a little bit i, I yeah. love cliff curtis i'm a big fan so maybe give him a little bit more to do um what who do you want because i've got i've got mary you got I've mary got george you got george do you have uncle billy I could have an Uncle Billy. Okay. Do you have a Mr. Potter? Not necessarily. Do you have a Mr. Potter? Anthony Hopkins. I mean, Boom. That's, yeah. That. I, I, <laughs> okay, so let's go. We'll go Mary, since if you, if you unless you have a Billy ready to go. Mary is Alicia Vikander. I like that a lot. I think I wrote down Brie Larson for me, but I, I like Alicia okay. Vikander a lot. I think both are good. Vikander, I would like to see just because I haven't seen her in a lot of late. Yeah. Um, very excited for Blue Bayou, but that's yeah. that's about it uh, as of late. So I, I'm 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 cool with that. Okay. I think I know your is is your is your is your George still the same as it was like the past two years in a row? Who, who, is it is it someone who has has recently uh, become more obvious as the as the answer? Is it Andrew Garfield? 
Yes, like, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I think that is the only answer. I think I think he is the heir to Jimmy Stewart's throne, and I'm I for once completely support the Garfield Azans that we are currently in. <laughs> he is the he is the lanky heart of gold boy of our our dreams come back to uh revive the Jimmy Stewart's Stewart. presence. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, I think if, I think if Jason Sudeikis was younger, I would throw in Jason Sudeikis as a as a possible contender. I think he's a little out of their age range now. Is the thing. Um, do you have Uncle Billy? Um, huh. Not off the top of my head. Paul Giamatti. <laughs> <laughs> I I've got like Jeff Bridges in mind, but I can't think if he's Potter or Uncle Billy. He he would be an interesting Potter. I like him as Potter, actually. I would like him as Potter. We won't think. We'll we'll, we'll just skip Uncle Billy. Um, but I like, I like Bridges as Potter. Elisa Vikander is as Mary Garfield as George. I think that's good. Cliff Curtis as Nick. Cliff Curtis as Nick, of course. Yeah. Cliff, Cliff Curtis. All right. How does this film fit with any other genres, or does it fit with any other genres? Huh. That's an interesting one. I mean, so here's the thing. This is still obviously it is it's not a Christmas Carol adaptation, but the the fingerprints of Christmas Carol are very are deep in this film. Yeah. Um. Whatever. I mean, I don't. I, I. I'm sorry, literature people. I'm not deep enough in literature to to know if the Christmas Carol was the first story about taking stock of your entire life up to that point and and <laughs> determining if you've lived up to your potential or whatever. But At whatever Christmas. that, you <laughs> yeah. know whatever that storyline is if the if it's not christmas exclusive then that too the christmas carol is obviously the most prominent one but yeah yeah that 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 subgenre that's nice. okay how does this film fit within the christmas genre i i think outside of christmas carol i think it is one of the sacred texts yeah a lot of christmas movies are either adaptations of the christmas carol or of this yeah um so yeah, it it is the it is the Hall of Fame. It is the Mount Rushmore. It is mm-hmm. it is right up there with with Dickens, in my opinion. Yeah, I think I think covers all the kind of things we talked about, like the goodwill towards men. It has the Christmas setting. It has this introspective view of like looking at your life um, in a certain way or reassessing your life. Um, in this case, being shown what your life would be like that caused you to reassess your current your current lifestyle. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it fits. It, it it is pretty much it's it's the Mount Rushmore of this genre. Um, and speaking of Mount Rushmore, I know one that's on Thomas's Mount Rushmore of Christmas films, I believe, and that's next week's episode. And what is next week's episode, Thomas? Next week we will be discussing Irving Berlin's White Christmas, starring Danny Kaye, Bing Crosby, Rosemary Clooney. Um, maybe not quite as profound as this one, but still a <laughs> Christmas classic. So I, I'm excited to see it because I haven't seen it since high school. So it's been a while for me. Um, so I think it's is it streaming somewhere right now? Is it on? It's Netflix. The last I think it's couple ne- of years, I think it's Netflix. Netflix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's next week. Be prepared. Go watch your Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye, Rosemary Clooney, all those. Michael Curtiz directed it, so get ready for that. Oh mm-hmm. uh, yeah, currently on Netflix. Um, so that's next week, but that's all we have for you on this episode. First part of our Christmas series. If you are a fan of the show or a new listener, make sure you subscribe to the Nation Podcast so you can stay up to date on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, 
or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure you write us a review on the, whatever platform you listen to the show on. Yeah, guys, dig deep within your Christmas spirit and leave us a good <laughs> review. That's That can be your Get, present that, to us. That's your present to us. It's free. It's made f- a minute of your time. Maybe a few seconds. I like this. This is good, period. Yeah. Boom. Spread, Done. spread the good cheer <laughs> for all to hear. And finally, don't forget to like us on, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all at jazz. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. Hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye.